Hey guys, it's Ellie, and this is Classic Mysteries. And today we are going to be finishing off the Musgrave Ritual, which is the Sherlock Holmes story that we started last week. And again, this will be a very short episode because last week was also a very short episode. So if you remember last week, there's a bit of a framing narrative. So Sherlock Holmes is telling Watson in like the present time about one of his old cases. The framing narrative is that he's telling it to Watson. And he's telling the story that made him famous. Like this is one of the cases that put him on the map. And, you know, it's from, like, way back before Watson knew him, so it's pretty cool. So it's just Sherlock, and it's really exciting. So, basically what we have in the story so far is that one of Sherlock's old friends from college, who really admired his skills, came over and he was like, Hey, I have this weird problem. My butler's been acting really strange. He was looking at this random, like, ritualistic paper we have in our archives, and I fired him. And also some maid that he was dating went crazy and was really happy slash mad slash went insane after he left. Um, so yeah, that's weird, and they're both missing. And, and then the maid came back after she finished being missing, I guess, and then was, you know, insane and kind of went a little bit crazy. And that's what we have so far. And so there's this whole thing. It's called the Musgrave Ritual. And that's because it's about the ritual that the Musgrave family does. And uh, so last week, we finished the episode by reading the Musgrave Ritual document that Sherlock Holmes asks him for. Um, because that's what the butler was reading when he wasn't supposed to be. Anyways, yeah, with no more waffle, let's jump right in. He handed me the very paper which I have here, Watson, and this is the strange catechism to which each Musgrave had to submit when he came to man's estate. I will read you the questions and answers as they stand. Whose was it? His who is gone. Who shall have it? He who will come. What was the month? The sixth from the first. Where was the sun? Over the oak. Where was the shadow? Under the elm. How was it stepped? North by ten and by ten, East by five and by five, south by two and by two, west by one and by one, and so under. What shall we give for it? All that is ours. Why should we give it? For the sake of trust. The original has no date, but is in the spelling of the middle of the 17th century, remarked Musgrave. I am afraid, however, that it can be of little help to you in solving this mystery. Hey, first of all, that whole thing, they aren't even acknowledging that it's probably a treasure map. <laughs> like, it's explaining a time, a place, and steps of, like, how to get to somewhere. And one of the last questions is, what shall we give for it? All that is ours? Like, that sounds like a treasure, doesn't it? <laughs> is it not a treasure map? Like, was the butler who stole this document not trying to find the treasure? Like, come on. <laughs> it's an old ritual that's generations old. And it's just some random document that makes no sense to the modern family. But obviously it's to find a treasure. Like, it's explaining, like, what month it was, where the sun was, like, how it was stepped, like, north by ten and by ten and so on. Like, it's, like, specific directions to get somewhere. <laughs> like, I'm just waiting for this to become a scavenger hunt, honestly. Like, Sherlock Holmes is gonna start, like, holding this paper in his hand and, like, running around the estate and, like, finding the oak that it mentions and, like, looking north and then south and looking at the sun and, like... <laughs> It's gonna be great, okay? I'm excited. At least, said I, it gives us another mystery, and one which is even more interesting than the first. It may be that the solution of the one may prove to be the solution of the other. You'll excuse me, Musgrave, if I say that your butler appears to have been a very clever man, and to have had a clearer insight than ten generations of his masters. I hardly follow you, said Musgrave. The paper seems to me to be of no practical importance. Ah, but to me it seems immensely practical, and I fancy that Brunton took the same view. He'd probably seen it before that night on which you caught him. It is very possible. We took no pains to hide it. 
He simply wished, I should imagine, to refresh his memory upon that last occasion. He had, as I understand, some sort of map or chart which he was comparing with the manuscript, and which he thrust into his pocket when you appeared? That is true, but what could he have to do with this old family custom of ours, and what does this rigmarole mean? I don't think that we should have much difficulty in determining that, said I. With your permission, we will take the first train down to Sussex, and go a little more deeply into the matter upon the spot. The same afternoon saw us both at Hurlstone. Possibly you have seen pictures and read descriptions of the famous old building, so I will confine my account of it to saying that it is built in the shape of an L, the long arm being a more modern portion, and the shorter the ancient nucleus from which the other had developed. Over the low, heavily lintel door in the center of this old part is chiseled the date, 1607, but experts are agreed that the beams and stonework are really much older than this. The enormously thick walls and tiny windows of this part had in the last century driven the family into building the new wing, and the old one was used now as a storehouse and a cellar, when it was used at all. A splendid park with fine old timber surrounds the house, and the lake, to which my client had referred, lay close to the avenue, about 200 yards from the building. I was already firmly convinced, Watson, that there were not three separate mysteries here, but one only, and if I could read the Musgrave ritual aright, I should hold in my hand the clue which would lead me to the truth concerning both Butler Brunton and the maid Howells. To that, then, I turned all my energies. Why should this servant be so anxious to master this old formula? Evidently because he saw something in it which had escaped all those generations of country squires, and from which he expected some personal advantage. What was it, then, and how had it affected his fate? It was perfectly obvious to me on reading the ritual that the measurements must refer to some spot to which the rest of the document alluded, that if we could find that spot, we should be in a fair way towards finding what the secret was which the old Musgraves had thought it necessary to embalm in so curious a fashion. There were two guides given us to start with, an oak and an elm. As to the oak, there could be no question at all. Right in front of the house, upon the left-hand side of the drive, there stood a patriarch among oaks, one of the most magnificent trees that I had ever seen. That was where your ritual was drawn up? said I, as we drove past it. It was there at the Norman Conquest, in all probability, he answered. It has a girth of twenty-three feet. My gosh, that tree is massive. Twenty-three <laughs> foot round tree. Jeez, that's a real girthy tree. <laughs> I'm sorry. Here was one of my fixed points secured. Have you any old elms? I asked. There used to be a very old one over yonder, but it was struck by lightning ten years ago, and we cut down the stump. You can see where it used to be? Oh, yes. There are no other elms? No old ones, but plenty of beeches. I should like to see where it grew. We had driven up in a dog cart, and my client led me away at once, without our entering the house, to the scar on the lawn where the elm had stood. It was nearly midway between the oak and the house. My investigation seemed to be progressing. I suppose it is impossible to find out how high the elm was? I asked. I can give it to you at once. It was sixty-four feet. How do you come to know it? I asked in surprise. When my old tutor used to give me an exercise in trigonometry, it always took the shape of measuring heights. When I was a lad, I worked out every tree and building in the estate. Talk about real-world math problems, eh? This was an unexpected piece of luck. My data were coming more quickly than I could have reasonably hoped. Tell me... I asked, did your butler ever ask you such a question? Reginald Musgrave looked at me in astonishment. Now that you call it to my mind, he answered, Brunton did ask me about the height of the tree some months ago in connection with some little argument with the groom. This was excellent news, Watson, for it showed me that I was on the right road. 
I looked up at the sun. It was low in the heavens, and I calculated that in less than an hour it would lie just above the topmost branches of the old oak. One condition mentioned in the ritual would then be fulfilled, and the shadow of the elm must mean the farther end of the shadow, otherwise the trunk would have been chosen as the guide. I had, then, to find out where the far end of the shadow would fall when the sun was just clear of the oak. That must have been difficult, Holmes, when the elm was no longer there. Well, at least I knew that if Brenton could do it, I could also. Besides, there was no real difficulty. I went with Musgrave to a study and whittled myself this peg, to which I tied this long string with a knot at each yard. Then I took two lengths of a fishing rod, which came to just six feet, and I went back with my client where the elm had been. The sun was just grazing the top of the oak. I fastened the rod on end, marked out the direction of the shadow, and measured it. It was nine feet in length. Of course, the calculation now is a simple one. If a rod of six feet threw a shadow of nine feet, a tree of sixty-four feet would throw one of ninety-five feet, and the line of the one would of course be the line of the other. I measured out the distance, which brought me almost to the wall of the house, and I thrust a peg into the spot. You can imagine my exultation, Watson, when within two inches of my peg, I saw a conical depression in the ground. I knew that it was a mark made by Brunton in his measurements, and that I was still upon his trail. I knew it! It's a treasure map! Ha <laughs> ha! It's totally like a scavenger hunt now, like he's following in Brenton's tracks to see what Brenton figured out. <laughs> he's literally doing math and measuring a shadow of a tree that no longer exists. <laughs> and he's like putting pegs in the ground and like measuring things exactly. Like, I love this. This is like what you do in an escape room, I feel like. Like, I, I absolutely feel like some escape room, based on Sherlock Holmes stories, has used this as like one of their rooms. Like, this has to exist somewhere. I need to find this. <laughs> From this starting point, I proceeded to step, having first taken the cardinal points by my pocket compass. Ten steps with each foot took me along a parallel with the wall of the house, and again I marked my spot with a peg. Then I carefully paced off five to the east and two to the south. It brought me to the very threshold of the old door. Two steps to the west meant now that I was to go two paces down the stone-flagged passage, and this was the place indicated by the ritual. I, I feel like the ritual could have just said, go into this building, instead of just saying like, 10 by 10 north, 5 south, whatever. <laughs> it didn't need to do that. It just said, hey, go into this door. <laughs> but hey, we always like things that are unnecessarily complex, right? This is kind of how Sherlock Holmes goes, you know? It's got to be a little bit pointlessly complex, you know? Never have I felt such a cold chill of disappointment, Watson. For a moment, it seemed to me that there must be some radical mistake in my calculations. The setting sun shone full upon the passage floor, and I could see that the old foot-worn grey stones with which it was paved were firmly cemented together, and had certainly not been moved for many a long year. Brunton had not been at work here. I tapped the floor, but it sounded the same all over, and there was no sign of any crack or crevice. But fortunately, Musgrave, who had begun to appreciate the meaning of my proceedings, and who was now excited as myself, took out his manuscript to check my calculation. "'And under!' he cried. "'You have omitted the and under!' I thought that it meant that we were to dig, but now, of course, I saw at once that I was wrong. There is a cellar under this, then? I cried. Yes, and as old as the house, down here through this door. We went through a winding stone stair, and my companion, striking a match, lit a large lantern which stood on a barrel in the corner. In an instant, it was obvious that we had at last come upon the true place, and that we had not been the only people to visit the spot recently. It had once been used for the storage of wood, but the billets, which had evidently been littered over the floor, were now piled at the sides so as to leave a clear space in the middle. In this space lay a large and heavy flagstone with a rusted iron ring in the center, to which a thick shepherd's check muffler was attached. 
By Jove, cried my client, that's Brunton's muffler. I've seen it on him and could swear to it. What has the villain been doing here? At my suggestion, a couple of the county police were summoned to be present, and I then endeavored to raise the stone by pulling on the cravat. I could only move it slightly, and it was with the aid of one of the constables that I succeeded at last in carrying it to one side. A black hole yawned beneath, into which we all peered, while Musgrave, kneeling at the side, pushed down the lantern. A small chamber about seven feet deep and four feet square lay open to us. At one side of this was a squat, brass-bound wooden box, the lid of which was hinged upwards, with this curious old-fashioned key projecting from the lock. It was furred outside with a thick layer of dust, and damp and worms had eaten through the wood, so that a crop of livid fungi was growing on the inside of it. Yum. <laughs> Several discs of metal, old coins apparently, such as I hold here, were scattered over the bottom of the box, but it contained nothing else. At the moment, however, we had no thought for the old chest, for our eyes were riveted upon that which crouched beside it. It was the figure of a man, clad in a suit of black, who squatted down upon his hands with his forehead sunk upon the edge of the box and his two arms thrown out on each side of it. The attitude had drawn all the stagnant blood to the face, and no man could have recognized that distorted liver-colored countenance, but his height, his dress, his hair were all sufficient to show my client, when he had drawn the body up, that it was indeed his missing butler. He had been dead some days, but there was no wound or bruise upon his person to show how he had met his dreadful end. When his body had been carried from the cellar, we found ourselves still confronted with a problem, which was almost as formidable as that with which we had started. Oh my gosh, okay, imagine. You're on the scavenger hunt, right? You're having a jolly old time, you're counting steps, you're measuring the shadows, and you're having a great time. You go into a cellar, you see this rotted-through treasure chest filled with rusty old coins that probably don't have any value anymore, and it's covered in mold, it's completely eaten through, it's disgusting. Right next to it, you see a days old corpse. I'm sure that kind of killed the joy of the moment, don't you think? <laughs> like, I'm sure Sherlock Holmes was having a fun time. He was having the time of his life, tracking down these clues, reading this old ritual, and kind of figuring out what it meant, right? And then he gets over here, and he sees a body, and he sees this crappy old treasure chest that doesn't even have anything in it, and he's just kind of like, oh, well, we have a new mystery to solve now. <laughs> like, I th imagine, like, that is, I'm sure, not what they'd expected at all. I, for one, expected to have, like, at least some hidden something, whether it be treasure or some documents or something, you know? Not a dead body. <laughs> I totally forgot about the missing butler. Like, I, I realized that he was missing, but I didn't think he would be dead, you know? I thought he would have just run away with whatever he found at the end of his search for some treasure, you know? I thought he just, like, took the treasure and booked it. I didn't think that he actually died. What killed him? Oh no, what killed him? Did he- Man, dude, I'm curious right now. How did he die? He's uh, supposedly, he's sitting alone in this basement with no one around him and presumably nobody else that knows that this treasure chest is here. So who killed him? Like, we can't see any outward wounds, so I don't think that it was suicide at all. I don't think there are any signs of poison or else Sherlock Holmes would have mentioned it, you know? So was it the maid that killed him? <gasps> was it the maid? It's always the maid. <laughs> oh, the mystery deepens. I confess that so far, Watson, I had been disappointed in my investigation. I had reckoned upon solving the matter when once I had found the place referred to in the ritual, but now I was here, and was apparently as far as ever from knowing what it was which the family had concealed with such elaborate precautions. It is true that I had thrown a light upon the face of Brunton, but now I had to ascertain how that fate had come upon him, and what part had been played in the matter by the woman who had disappeared. I sat down upon a keg in the corner and thought the whole matter carefully over. You 
know my methods in such cases, Watson. I put myself in the man's place, and having first gauged his intelligence, I try to imagine how I should myself have proceeded under the same circumstances. In this case, the matter was simplified by Brunton's intelligence being quite first-rate, so that it was unnecessary to make any allowance for the personal equation, as the astronomers have dubbed it. He knew that something valuable was concealed. He had spotted the place. He found that the stone which covered it was just too heavy for a man to move unaided. What would he do next? He could not get help from outside, even if he had someone whom he could trust, without the unbarring of doors and considerable risk of detection. It was better, if he could, to have his helpmate inside the house. But whom could he ask? This girl had been devoted to him. A man always finds it hard to realize that he may have finally lost a woman's love, however badly he may have treated her. He would try, by a few attentions, to make his peace with the girl Howells, and then would engage her as his accomplice. Together, they would come at night to the cellar, and their united force would suffice to raise the stone. So far, I could follow their actions as if I had actually seen them. But for two of them, and one a woman, it must have been heavy work, the raising of that stone. A burly Sussex policeman and I have found it no light job. What would they do to assist them? Probably what I should have done myself. I rose and examined carefully the different billets of wood which were scattered round the floor. Almost at once I came upon what I expected. One piece, about three feet in length, had a very marked indentation at one end, while several were flattened at the sides as if they had been compressed by some considerable weight. Evidently, as they had dragged the stone up, they had thrust the chunks of wood into the chink, until at last, when the opening was large enough to crawl through, they would hold it open by a billet placed lengthwise, which might very well become indented at the lower end, since the whole weight of the stone would press it down onto the edge of this other slab. So far, I was still on safe ground. I love it when Sherlock Holmes does this, like where he slowly goes through exactly what happened and who did it and how they did it and why they did it. Like, it's fun, you know? And now, how was I to proceed to reconstruct this midnight drama? Clearly, only one could fit into the hole, and that one was Brunton. The girl must have waited above. Brunton then unlocked the box, handed up the contents, presumably, since they were not to be found, and then... and then... what happened? What smoldering fire of vengeance had suddenly sprung into flame in this passionate Celtic woman's soul when she saw the man who had wronged her, wronged her, perhaps, far more than we had suspected, in her power? Was it a chance that the wood had slipped and that the stone had shut Brunton into what had become a sepulchre? Had she only been guilty of silence as to his fate? Or had some sudden blow from her hand dashed the support away and sent the slab crashing down into its place? But that as it might, I seemed to see that woman's figure still clutching at her treasure trove and flying wildly up the winding stairs with her ears ringing perhaps with a muffled screams from behind her and with the drumming of frenzied hands against the slab of stone which was choking her faithless lover's life out. Here was the secret of her blanched face, her shaken nerves, her peals of hysterical laughter on the next morning. But what had been in the box? What had she done with that? Of course, it must have been the old metal and pebbles which my client had dragged from the mirror. She had thrown them in there at the first opportunity, to remove the last trace of her crime. For twenty minutes, I had sat motionless, thinking the matter out. Musgrave still stood with a very pale face, swinging his lantern and peering down into the hole. These are coins of Charles I, said he, holding out the few which had been in the box. You see, we were right in fixing our date for the ritual. We may find something else of Charles I, I cried, as the probable meaning of the first two questions of the ritual broke suddenly upon me. Let me see the contents of the bag which you fished from the mare. We ascended to his study, and he laid the debris before me. I could understand his regarding it as of small importance when I looked at it, 
for the metal was almost black and the stones lusterless and dull. I rubbed one of them on my sleeve, however, and it glowed afterwards like a spark in the dark hollow of my hand. The metalwork was in the form of a double ring, but it had been bent and twisted out of its original shape. You must bear in mind, said I, that the royal party made head in England even after the death of the king, and that when they last fled they probably left many of their most precious possessions buried behind them, with the intention of returning for them in more peaceful times. My ancestor, Sir Ralph Musgrave, was a prominent cavalier and the right-hand man of Charles II in his wanderings, said my friend. Ah, indeed, I answered. Well, now I think that really should give us the last link that we wanted. I must congratulate you on coming into the possession, though in rather a tragic manner, of such a relic which is of great intrinsic value, but of even greater importance as an historical curiosity. What is it then? He gasped in astonishment. It is nothing less than the ancient crown of the kings of England. The crown? Precisely. Consider what the ritual says. How does it run? Whose was it? His who is gone. That was after the execution of Charles. Then, who shall have it? He who will come. That was Charles II, whose advent was already foreseen. There can, I think, be no doubt that this battered and shapeless diadem once encircled the brows of the royal stewards. And how came it in the pond? Ah, that is a question which will take some time to answer. And with that, I sketched out to him the whole long chain of surmise and of proof which I had constructed. The twilight had closed in, and the moon was shining brightly in the sky before my narrative was finished. And how was it then that Musgrave did not get his crown when he returned? Asked Musgrave, pushing back the relic into its linen bag. Ah, there you lay your finger upon the one point which we shall probably never be able to clear up. It is likely that the Musgrave who held the secret died in the interval, and by some oversight left this guide to his descendant without explaining the meaning of it. From that day to this, it has been handed down from father to son, until at last it came within reach of a man who tore its secret out of it and lost his life in the venture. And that's the story of the Musgrave ritual, Watson. They have the crown down at Hurlstone, though they had some legal bother and a considerable sum to pay before they were allowed to retain it. I am sure that if you mentioned my name, they would be happy to show it to you. Of the woman, nothing was ever heard, and the probability is that she got away out of England and carried herself, and the memory of her crime, to some land beyond the seas. The end. Oh my goodness, that became such a scavenger hunt, I dig it. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. It went from, like, a mansion murder to an escape room to, like, some... Uh, like Indiana Jones type stuff, <laughs> like finding an old treasure chest with a dead man next to it in an old cellar in an old outbuilding of an old mansion. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, that was a lot of fun. And I hope to read more Sherlock Holmes in the future. Obviously, I will because I love Sherlock Holmes. But if you have anything else you want me to read, any other Agatha Christie or any other author that you've ever read that you would like me to try and read in the podcast, email it to me. ClassicMysteriesPod at gmail.com. It's also in the show notes. And I think it'd be fun if you guys would share with me your favorite mystery books. Secondly, if you're on any podcast app or software or, I don't know, some other device that you can engage with the podcast on somehow, it would be great if you would, because honestly, these stories are really good. <laughs> and I think that more people should hear them and more people should find out about these cool stories, because honestly, this is all from like 100 years ago. Sherlock Holmes is over 100 years ago. This is before 1900. And so these are really old stories, but they're still really good and fun. And especially like the book that I read last, Bulldog Drummond, was so funny to me. Unintentionally sometimes, but still really funny. And that was from 1919. Like these old books have so much value and, you know, not many people get to read them, you know? 
But yeah, anyways, thirdly, there are those two links in the show notes that you know very well. The first one is just to donate to me via PayPal if you ever feel like it for some reason. I don't know why you would, but it's there. Um, and the second one is just to become my patron. So if you would check those out, I'd greatly appreciate it. And yeah. Also, <laughs> I know that I missed the Minute Mysteries episode last week. I'm sorry. Don't worry. You'll get one next week. So yeah. Anyways, I had an amazing week this week, and I hope that you guys have an amazing week as well. I'll see you guys next Monday. Bye!